Amen. You may be seated. Well, Happy New Year. That doesn't, just, that doesn't have the same ring to it as Merry Christmas, does it? It just doesn't get you as excited as just someone saying Merry Christmas. Now, I don't know about you, but I love everything about the Christmas season. I love walking around the neighborhood and just looking at all the, uh, the lights and just the creativity of, of people just decorating their houses. I love uh, just spending time with, with uh, my family and just, you know, just this season, just kind of putting pause as the kids are out of school and taking some days off and just, just understanding what really matters. I also, you know, call me crazy, but I enjoy going to the mall and all of this chaos trying to find that right gift. I mean, I, <laughs> I look at it as a scavenger hunt, of, and I'm just trying to win, all right? I'm, I'm a competitive person. The, you know, the, all of my favorite memories, or I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of my favorite memories come around this time of the year, just growing up and just spending time with my family. I mean, the only hard thing about this season is, is, is that it's when it's over, I mean, you think about it with, with one moment, one gift, one family visit, it's gone. I mean, the, the only thing left to do is to take down the decorations. And after you've taken down the decorations, you kind of look around the house and, and it just seems bare, doesn't it? It just seems a little bit empty, like, like something's missing. And I don't know about you, but I kind of feel that way emotionally as well. It's like all of a sudden you're in this season, this joy-filled, exciting season, just anticipating this hope and just this fun time, and then it's over. And all of a sudden you're just like, I just, it's hard to have that same feeling and expression. I mean, it begs us to ask the question, is there a way that we can extend Christmas? Now, some people try because they just don't take their decorations down until March. But is there a way that we can at least extend the, just the feeling that we have, the meaning of Christmas? Or is this what we've kind of resigned ourselves to, is that, is that all of a sudden, after all of this hope and excitement and coming together, we now just have to resign ourselves to just the, the grind of the daily calendar again? Or is there something that we can move from Christmas or take from Christmas and move on into the next year? Well, think about the people in the early century, okay? I mean, you know, maybe they heard about this, about Christmas morning. Maybe they heard about all the lights, the carolers, the gifts, the guests. I mean, they were probably excited that maybe that, that now their life was going to change and change for the better. They were hopeful. They were excited. But then all of a sudden, Joseph and Mary is on the run, and this celebration is over. And they're left looking around, wondering, is there any evidence or sign of Christmas? You see, all of a sudden, the sky is bare. The lights are dim. The carolers have stopped singing. And it's just quiet. Now, 30 years later, there is a sign that comes in the form of a man, a man named John. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 3, we're going to take a look at this man, this man that we know as John the Baptist. And we can learn from this story that there are three ways that we can still see evidence of Christmas all year round. Evidences and signs that show that, that, that we can take and have this joy-filled expectation 
uh, throughout the entire year. The evidence of Christmas is seen in the gospel message. It's also seen in the transformation of community and is seen in the hope of the mission. And so let's take a look at how the evidence of Christmas is found in the message of the gospel. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Uteria and Trachonitis, <laughs> and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priests of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Before we take a look at the message of John, I want to take a look at the messenger. Because Luke, the, the author, is, is writing in such a way to kind of point people that not only was John an important man, but he was the fulfillment of prophecy, that he was a prophet sent by God. He writes the first three verses, and it's, and it's subtle, but it's noticeable. But he writes them in the same way as all of the old uh, prophets did when they were starting their books. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Micah and Amos. And he's, and he's drawing this parallel to those prophets, uh, to that of John the Baptist. He goes on to say that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of prophecy as the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. See, the Jews would understand the wilderness because their ancestors spent a lot of time in the desert. Forty years as they went from exile of uh, from Egypt all the way as they moved to the promised land. And it was during that time that those people kind of, they rebelled. And God spoke through his prophet Moses to restore their relationship and point them to the promised land. And now God is speaking through the prophet John to help them restore the relationship and point them to the kingdom of heaven. So John is a big deal. John is the prophet. After 500 years of prophetic silence, God has chosen to speak through this man, this man named John. To kind of give us a little bit more of a background of who John the Baptist is, I I found just a fun video that I would like you to see. Let's take a look at the screen. God's story, John the Baptist. So part of God's story is about a man we call John the Baptist, and it begins like this. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, a man named Isaiah wrote that somebody would come to prepare people for Jesus' arrival. He was talking about a guy named John the Baptist. Well, actually, his name was John. We call him the Baptist because he baptized a lot of people. Anyway, before John was even born, an angel appeared to his dad and said, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your wife Elizabeth will have a child. It will be a boy, and you must name him John. He will be important in the Lord's eyes. John was important because he would get people ready for Jesus, who was coming to rescue us. Did we mention that John was Jesus' cousin? Pretty crazy, huh? Well, right from the beginning, John was a bit unusual. For starters, he spent the first part of his life in the wilderness. Maybe he slept on the ground and used rocks for pillows. 
Maybe he brushed his teeth with sticks. Maybe he used leaves as toilet paper. We don't know. All the Bible tells us is that he stayed in the desert until he started telling people about Jesus. Then, when he came back into civilization, he still seemed strange. He wore clothes made out of camel's hair and a leather belt. Imagine how itchy hairy clothes must have been. And for food, he ate locusts dipped in honey, just like he had eaten in the desert. You know what a locust is? It's a grasshopper. But don't worry, you don't have to eat bugs to follow Jesus. Anyway, John didn't come back from the desert to live like everybody else. He came back to teach people about Jesus. So he started telling everybody that God loves us so much, he's sending his own son to rescue us. This made a lot of people want to follow God and his son, Jesus. So, John began baptizing them. That's how he got his nickname. Kids, baptism is what we do when we decide to tell everybody that we're following Jesus. While John was baptizing and teaching, some people thought he might be the rescuer. He seemed really smart, and he knew a lot about God. But John knew he needed Jesus to rescue him, just like everybody else. So, he said, someone who is more powerful than I am will come. I'm not good enough to untie the straps of his sandals. John was making a point by talking about Jesus' feet. See, back then, everyone's feet were almost always dirty because they wore sandals, stepped in dust and camel poop, and didn't have showers. So when John said he wasn't good enough to untie Jesus' sandals, he was basically saying that he would feel lucky if he could help Jesus with his dirty feet. That's how much John loved Jesus. Well, even though John told everybody about Jesus, he was actually waiting for the rescue, too. Then one day, he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus came to the shore and asked John to baptize him. Kids, remember how John thought he'd be lucky to help Jesus clean his feet? John didn't think he was good enough to baptize Jesus, but Jesus told John to do it. And when John baptized Jesus, something really special happened. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven like a dove. And God actually said out loud, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. The Bible says that heaven opened up, and John got to be a part of that with Jesus, all because he had given his whole life to follow Him. And that's the story of John the Baptist. <laughs> so as the video portrayed, John had a specific message. It was a message of repentance. And it was, I mean, it was, it was different than uh, what anybody else was speaking. I mean, repentance isn't a very popular word in our culture, is it? I mean, it seems to be more negative than it does positive. But, it, I mean, it rubs against our society and just our individualistic, our high tolerance, anything goes types of, type of mindset. But for his audience, it was good news. You see, as the, as the crowd was, was listening to John, they have, all, they have always bought into kind of the Pharisees' uh, religion. And the Pharisees' religion was more kind of this work-based, uh, self-righteous uh, type of uh, theology. And so it was all about kind of their external, uh, it was, uh, their external aspects. What can you do? And so people could see how your relationship with God, with God was going as God was uh, blessing their life. If good things were happening to your life, then you must be okay with God. But if bad things are happening in your life, then God must not be pleased by you. 
Now, this type of idea, I mean, this idea really worked well for the Pharisees because most of them kind of grew up in affluent homes. They went to the best schools. They were leaders in society. And so it always seemed like they were being blessed by God. And they liked to point that out to people. But other people who weren't as blessed were seen as people that had to kind of work and to earn God's favor uh, in their life. If, if you were a person who was maybe poor, and most of them were, then you had to work harder. If you were a person who had a disease or, or had a disability, then obviously God is cursing you of, or, or you or your family for something that you have done or an unconfessed sin. He's trying to point it out to you. And so all of these things uh, were happening that the Pharisees said that you must, uh, to appease God, kind of follow the law. You had to work a little bit harder in keeping the law to, to help earn God's favor back. But not just the laws of the Old Testament. They wanted you to follow all of, God, all of the Pharisees' laws and traditions that they've created since that time. And so by that time, by the time of John the Baptist, the people were overwhelmed, overburdened by trying to keep all of the laws that were going on. And many people at that time were just starting to give up. They were starting to think, is there a, is there a point? I mean, how, do, how can I earn God's favor? There's, there's too many laws. They were getting tired. They were getting discouraged. And so all of a sudden, when John shows up and, and tells them a different message, a message of repentance, it was different. It was not about the self-righteous acts of keeping the law, but it was understanding that we all fall short of God's standard. It wasn't about, self, it wasn't about uh, how much that we can give, but that salvation is for all people. His message was simple. It was repent. See, repent means to change one's mind. And this is different than just deciding which kind of ice cream that you want. If you've ever taken a, your family to go get ice cream, you realize that your kids are going to change their mind from time to time, right? The minute that you get up there and you think you're all set or you're in the, you're in the drive-thru of McDonald's and, you're, and all of a sudden they say, what can you order? And you think you have it all set and then they're starting to throw all the different changes, right? Have you ever experienced, am I the only one? I mean, I've, I've experienced this a lot. I hate the drive-thru because of this thing. All right, But it's different than, it's changing one's mind about sin. It's understanding that at one point we try to pursue our own lifestyle and independence. Uh, we try to uh, be the, you know, the king of our, of our own domain. And so we try to do everything that we wanted to do. But we are changing ourselves, we are turning ourselves around 180 degrees to pursue God. It's realizing that we have tried to, at some point, pursue the waves of the world. But God's saying, repentance is about turning around and walking in obedience to Christ. It's no longer choosing for ourselves what we want. It's choosing to live for God. And that's repentance. And that's what's different than what the Pharisees' message. The Pharisees' message was, you need to work hard and to try harder. You need to earn God's love. And what John was saying is, you don't really have to do anything. You just have to acknowledge that you fall short of God's standard. You just need to acknowledge that you need a Savior. And that there's no way that you can earn God's love, but that God has sent someone, a Messiah, to come and to restore that relationship. In Luke chapter 3, verse 4, it, it goes on, and he, they're using an illustration here. It says, prepare the way, way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Another way to say it is make his path easier. I mean, they're likening our spiritual walk or journey to a path. Now, one of the best things about living in the Pacific Northwest, especially on a clear day, is being able to look out and see Mount Rainier. Isn't it? And if you ever had a chance to hike Mount Rainier, you know that it's a lot harder to hike Mount Rainier than to take a walk around, around the block in your neighborhood, isn't it? I mean, my, my wife and I decided that we were going to go, and uh, Aubrey was about three years old, and so we thought, all right, she's not going to be able to handle this, so we're going to bring the stroller. And so, but like every three-year-old, they don't want to sit in the stroller, so here we are pushing a stroller up Mount Rainier, these 30-degree inclines, and Aubrey's outside of the stroller. Okay, but we still, we're doing this. Okay, and we're going all up, and, and there, there are high inclines, there's switchbacks, there's rocky paths, and the stroller's going crazy like this. Okay, and, and we go about two, two and a half miles, we get done, we're exhausted, Aubrey has more energy than we do, and we finally get home, and guess what? Our stroller never worked the same, whether it's on sidewalk, smooth ground, or not, I mean, something broke in that stroller on Mount Rainier. But, but it was harder. Now, it's fun to walk Mount Rainier at times, but we don't want to do it all the time, right? And what John is saying is this, is that when we try to put things uh, in the gospel, when we try to add religion in the gospel, kind of this work-based mindset, when we try to add rituals into the gospel and check all the boxes, when we compare ourselves with others, when we try to make it about us than it is about God, We are trying to make this religion, our theology, more like a mountain than just a smooth path. John says in verse 5, or Luke says in verse 5, is that that the message of repentance is making this path simpler. That Jesus came and collapsed all the barriers. He raised the valleys, brought down the mountains. He made the crooked path straight and the rocky path smooth so that we can find him and that he can find us and our relationship can be restored. You see the difference in how, why the audience would receive John's message of repentance better? How they saw this as good news? And this is good news for us. You know, for, for the Pharisees, it was all about whether or not you were a Jew, if you were a child of Abraham. But John said all people, all categories can receive the Messiah. To the Jews, it was all about how God was blessing you if you were rich. But the message of repentance is even if you are poor, you can come to Christ. For John, it says, they said it's only for those who earned it. But John says all people can come. See, because Jesus came for everyone in verse 6. See, it doesn't matter if this is your first time at church or you grew up in church. The gospel is for you. It doesn't matter if you are a rule follower or you love to learn through experience. The gospel's for you. It doesn't matter if you are accepted by society or if you feel like you're an outcast. It doesn't matter. The gospel is for you. I mean, isn't that the message of Christmas? Isn't that why God allowed uh, shepherds poor on the fringe of society but Jews to come and bow down to him? At the same time, wise men who were, could stand before kings who were rich but Gentiles could also? And everyone in between has access to the Father through Jesus. That's the message. See, Jesus came from heaven to earth. And, he, and by doing so, he, he, died, he died on the cross and removed the greatest barrier of all that separated us from Father. And that is the obstacle of sin. 
See, every time that we see a person come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, we see evidence of Christmas. So in verse uh, verse 7, we see that there is transformation of community. It's another evidence of Christmas. In verse 7, he says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You broad of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. We see that John is speaking to kind of a mixed group of people. All right, we see that there's Pharisees and soldiers, tax collectors, and and just a group of people. Uh, that's involved. We see that there are people who are very religious and people who are very irreligious. But again, it doesn't matter because the gospel broke down all those barriers. But John is saying is that those who have repentant hearts, those whose heart has changed, should show a change in their actions. There should be fruits of righteousness, fruits of repentance that happens that all people can see, including those people that are around us in our relationships. He likens it to kind of a a, a tree. A good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. You know, there's really no point in having a bad tree that produces bad fruit, is there? I mean, you can't take the fruit because it's rotten. The, the The fruits fall to the ground and it's a mess to clean up. And it invites all of these critters and, you know, bugs and all that kind of stuff to come and to eat and all that kind of stuff affecting and possibly hindering the good trees. Matter of fact, the only good thing that you can do for a bad tree is cut it down by the roots and use it for firewood. And so he says, as people who have repentant heart, who have changed their hearts towards God, people around us, our relationships, be able to see that change in us by our change in our actions. And so he's trying to describe what's, going to, what's happening to these groups of people. Now, I asked some volunteers to kind of come up and help me. And if you are one of my volunteers, can you just kind of come up here on stage? Got two there. All right. Good. All right, so we have, we have some people here, all right? And so, you know what? I'm going to give you this Pharisee card. I'm going to give you this one, all right? Now, let's see. You know what? Let's do you as the tax collector. Do you like money? Yes. A little bit, okay. All right, you're the soldier, okay? All right, Matthew, come on over here. All right, I'm going to have you here. Okay, this is Levi, all right, Paisley, and Katie, okay? Now, a sign is just not going to be enough here, so we got to get some more props here, okay? So what we have here is like, as a Pharisee, you're kind of older people, kind of uh, older mature person, and so what we have here is a gray beard that you're going to need to put on, all right, just to kind of make sure, there you go, all right, Pharisee, instant, all right, good, good, all right, now... Levi, you are going to have this robe on right here, okay? And so I'm going to just kind of slip this in. 
you. All right, good. All right, you're going to grow into that a little bit. All right, so, and here's kind of an extra tunic that you got. Hold on to that. All right, perfect. Okay. Now, your bag of money. Yeah, all right, you got it. Didn't take her long to get the part, okay? And here you go. You're a soldier. All right, got to make sure. Okay, good. All right, good. All right, now, you know, the Pharisees uh, were, were people that a lot of people saw as the example and the very definition of society. But because, uh, you know, John spoke out against the Pharisees, he knocked their theology and said that it was wrong. They spoke against the message of repentance and, and spoke more about religion. Matter of fact, John comes over and, and verse 7 says, You broad of vipers. And I believe that he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees who are all or all people who teach a different message than the gospel. Okay? And so what he's saying is, is that a viper is a... Do you know what a viper is? Snake. A snake. Now, no one wants to be called a snake, right? That's not very nice, right? But I believe that John even has a greater, bigger meaning than just calling the Pharisee a snake. And that is, ever since the Garden of Eden, the snake was associated with the, the Satan, with Satan, right? And so what John is calling the Pharisees really is, you group of Satans, all right? And so he is coming out and saying exactly what he thinks. Now, here's the problem is that for so long, people have been trying to look to be like the Pharisees. They were following their examples. They were trying to earn uh, their, you know, uh, earn their respect and follow their laws. And so they were just overburdening, overwhelming themselves with everything that the Pharisees were, were saying. All right. And so now, now that John has spoken up against the Pharisees, they're saying, they're saying, they're saying, now what, John? What do we do? Who do we follow? How do we spend our extra time? We've been spending it for so long trying to, you know, uh, fulfill the laws. Now what do we do? Well, I'm glad that you asked this question. Because we come to just our regular people, right? These, the people in the general audience. And so what John says is simply this. I want you to share. I want you to share. See, he says, if you have a tunic, which is this, okay, he says, if you have an, an extra tunic, I want you to share that with others who doesn't have a tunic. If you have extra food, I want you to share your food with those who have it. A tunic was kind of an undershirt, right? To, you know, because this is kind of made out of wool a lot of times, and it was kind of scratchy. We don't like to wear scratchy clothes, do we? No, so it kind of protected yourself from all the scratchiness, okay? Now, but also, if it was cold, some people would bring that extra tunic to try to keep them a little bit warm. And so John is saying, hey, if you see someone who's in need, who needs some clothes, who needs some food, don't just hold on to it, all right? Hand it over, share, show kindness to that person, okay? And he's saying that by this, we can transform society. We can transform our community by, by one act of kindness, by one act of love. I mean, think about it. What would happen if the church was intentional about giving generously to those in need? I mean, imagine what would happen in our city if they saw how believers were intentional about helping others. What would happen in our neighborhoods if, they, if our neighbors were recipients of tangible expressions of love from us? What would happen 
if the number one thing that people knew this church, Westwood 4, was that we are a church that cares because we share. We share what we have. You see, clothing and food, that, those were essentials, weren't they? I mean, I, I think those were needed. And so, I mean, uh, John's saying we can share a lot of things, but definitely clothing and food and anything that we see that people have needs for. Now, the tax collectors kind of come over and say, well, what, what can we do? All right, now, the tax collectors, you, you may know this, Paisley, but weren't some very liked by society. I mean, you were kind of despised because, you know what, you made these guys poor so that you can have more money, right? So you wanted to get rich, and so you would collect more money, and by all the money that you were collecting, you were actually keeping Rome in power, and so people just saw you as a traitor and not, and not liked at all. And so they're sitting there, what should we do? And John goes to the tax collector and says, here's what I want you to do. Well, let's take a look at what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I want you to quit your job. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, I want you to be people of integrity. I want you to be honest. I want you to have character. I want you to not collect more money than what you need. I mean, it's pretty simple, isn't it? He goes on to the soldier, and now these soldiers were probably not Roman soldiers, but Jewish soldiers that protected the temple and the court system and all that. And in those days, in the early century, is that the judicial system was corrupt, Okay, everyone knew it. There was no such thing as a fair trial because everyone thought that lawyers and, and, uh, and the judges were immoral and unethical. Let's keep our lawyer jokes to a minimum, okay? So anyway, so the, the soldiers saw this corruption and the soldiers saw that this was a fraudulent system and decided that they were going to kind of take advantage of it and maybe put some money into their pocketbooks as well, okay, into their wallets. And so what they would do is is that they would falsely accuse people of crimes that they didn't commit and then say, I'm going to arrest you unless you pay me a bribe. And the people knew that the judicial system was so corrupted that it was easier to just pay the bribe than to trust yourself to be found innocent in an unfair trial. So again, John says, you know what, don't, you don't have to quit your job. He says, matter of fact, you don't even have to look like me. You don't have to wear the camel's hair and eat the locust. That's a good thing, right? Okay, he says that you don't have to be a monk and live like a hermit. He says that you don't have to fight and to overthrow the system. What he does say is more radical than all of that. He says, I want you to live in the same place and the same job, go to the same school, do all the same things, but live it differently. I want you to be people that can be trusted. I want you to be people of, of character. I want you to be people that will live towards righteousness. You see, isn't that what Jesus did for us? Is that when we were naked, he clothed us in his righteousness? When we were hungry, he came to become the bread of life? When he saw that we were spiritually broke, trapped in a corrupt system, that he came to free us? Didn't he say that when he saw the price that we had to pay, that he came to pay our debt? See, to John, it wasn't about these four groups. It's really about two groups. Those who have repented and those who haven't. But he's saying is that if you have a changed heart, People should see a change in your actions. And by that, you see a transformation of society. And that's 
the evidence of Christmas. All right, guys, you can give me all of this. All right, put it back in the bin. Um, of course, you know, we have some lovely parting gifts here. So, you know, just you stood up here, do that, that. Thank you very much. And I'm going to get Levi. Here you go. There. Can we give him a hand? Yes, yes, excellent. All right. Okay, good. The last thing that I want us to see is that the evidence of Christmas is the hope of for the mission. In verse 15, it says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. See, again, John is saying not only will a change heart reveal a change of actions, but it will, be, it will reveal a change of outlook as well. John is shifting this conversation from a physical one to a spiritual one, from temporary to eternal, from inward focus to outward focus. And he's using an example of this. He's saying kind of in a farming example where a farmer would come with kind of like this pitchfork. And he would take this kind of this grain and they would take it and they would kind of throw it up in the air. And the wind would kind of blow away the things that are unneeded, unused and unvaluable. And the things that were valuable and were needed would be like the seeds and the grain would kind of drop to a pile on the floor. And that's what you wanted. Okay. And John's saying is that the person who's going to come, the Messiah will have the authority to take our life and take it like a winnowing fork and throw it up in the air and to see what blows away and what will drop to the ground. See, John's saying is, is that how are you living your life? How are you living on mission? What kind of view do you have? Will the majority of our life be blown away or will it fall in purpose and value for the, for the mission, for the hope of the gospel? See, disciples of Jesus can't stop making disciples of Jesus. When we understand the word of God, when we understand all of, its, all of his value, then we should be compelled to live our life on mission. With everything that we do and everything that we have, we should try to leverage influence for the sake of the gospel. For those of us who have repentance hearts, we have experienced all of his infinite love and goodness and grace and generosity and kindness and mercy on our life. And we should desire that everyone around us have to know the all-sufficient Savior of God. So we should live our life on mission. Now that it's December 29th, we're two days away from the new year, right? This is a great opportunity for us to come together to make a resolution, a goal, to focus and say that the year 2020, we are going to live on mission, more generous, more sacrificial, more desiring for people to know God than ever before. You see, when people live with that type of lifestyle, when people share the message of Jesus, that's the evidence of Christmas. That's what gets us excited. That's what gets our emotions going and, and that we start to feel that joy-filled excitement that we, that we once did on Christmas morning all over again. We should see the message of the gospel. We should see acts of kindness and people sharing the gospel with others. That is the way that we can have Christmas all year round. Let's pray.
Lord, we, we, we just love you. And sometimes we just make it so hard. But God, that you come and take away all the barriers and you collapse all the problems, Lord, so that, um, so that we can know you. We thank you for how you came to this earth to pursue us. And Lord, I just pray that as we make you our Lord and Savior, that we will live different lives. That we won't run, but Lord, that we will, that we will allow people to see the change in our life. And Lord, I pray that this coming year, that we will have the courage and boldness to share uh, you to others. Lord, we thank you that you choose you cho- to use us. You choose to use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and we'll sing this song, Lord, be glorified. Emphasizing the the words of John the Baptist regarding uh, uh, repentance. Repentance.